You're listening to the Mentors for Military podcast with your host, Robert Gowan, Rudy Lindsay, Mike Pretz, and Kat Caden, with special guest host, Scott Kinder. Hey everyone, it's Robert here. We received a direct message on Instagram about doing an episode on being a young leader. We thought, wow, this is a great opportunity to talk about leadership and especially being a young leader because we all start somewhere and start at some point. For many of us, it's probably when we're at a very early age, especially if we come out of officer candidate school, ROTC, or just graduated college and becoming a young officer in the military, or if we were a non-commissioned officer with only a few years of experience in the military, we take that experience that we've gained or what we've been taught about leadership and try to apply that to uh, what we do. So in this episode, Scott Kinder and I start to talk about young leadership and some of the challenges that we each faced. And uh, in some cases, even some of the things that we learned, whether it was uh, through hazing or whatever the case may be, could be used as bad or good. Uh, but you have to take away from it what you believe to be the best way to lead your team moving forward. And uh, each of those experiences, good and bad, are experiences, and they teach us something. So always be mindful of what's going on and try to use what's best around you, but uh, to understand that you're always learning and growing. And if you're not learning and growing as a leader, then you're probably not going to be very successful along the way. You may turn around and find that you're really not leading anyone. So again, in this episode, Scott Kinder and I talk about young leadership, and I hope you enjoy it. Uh, If you haven't already checked out SkeletonOptics.com to look at their Italian handcrafted frames and Carl Zeiss polarized lens, please do. And use the code MENTORS, the number 4MIL, to take advantage of a 10% discount there. Sit back, relax. It's time for another episode. So we got on the subject of being a young leader. And I thought this was a great topic because, you know, when you start thinking about most people they run into a leadership position at an early age. Now, you were a little bit different. I was 19 when I became an NCO. I came in the Army at 17 years of age, and I was 19, just about 20, when I became a sergeant. I had no clue what it was like to be a non-commissioned officer other than the examples of the individuals that I had watched, and I didn't have a lot of great examples up to this point. And I had maybe one good guy that was a good mentor, but the most for the most part, I had some pretty crappy non-commissioned officers that I was serving under. They didn't know how to lead. So, of course, when I pinned it on, the first thing I did was try to emulate what I thought was good from what I took away and make sure I didn't do the things that were bad that I paid attention to, trying to be smart about it. But I got to tell you, I failed a lot in that process, many, many times over. And you came in as an 18 X-ray, having already been probably a leader, I guess, in the private sector before you came on active duty. Yeah, it was it was really weird because um, I was in my mid-20s, you know, going through basic training and everything else. So uh, in, in basic, you know, I was an older guy and, you know, the platoon leader and just whatever the drill sergeants could, could throw on me. Um, and it was great. I was I was a vice president of international operations for a, a dot com, and I, and I worked in Morgan Stanley before the dot com, and et cetera. So I had been around the world already and interfacing with local governments in the Caribbean, and then selling the company in Australia and doing stuff like that. So I had had positions of authority, but really until the military, I didn't think of myself as as a leader. Um, and it wasn't until I got to the Q course and, and I saw 
what or even before the I mean Sop C, you know, I, I didn't I didn't want to emulate the stuff that I saw the drill sergeants in the guys at airborne school doing because it was as a as a private first class, you know, um, wrongly, you know, not having my specialist upon entry because um, E4 because of my college degree. Uh, you know, I got, as you know, it was just horrific experience, you know, everything. Well, it's it was a just, training you know, environment. Yeah, it's a training environment, too. It was horrible. So when you say you didn't want to emulate the bad, before I got to SOPC, the Special Ops Prep and Conditioning course, all I knew in the military was bad. All I knew was, you know, and I wrote about this in some of my books, right, was drill sergeants from other battalions coming over to see these new 18 x-rays just to smoke us and, and run over us as we're in the plank and we're doing push-ups and, and we're carrying heavy things and telling us, you're never going to make it. You know, I went to selection and I broke my ankle. Who do you think you are? And so I had a, a copious amount of information in my head of, of behaviors that I did not like in the, in the regular army. So my biggest fear was I had a contract and, and if I didn't make it into a team, I was going to be surrounded by all those very people that were just, in my opinion, you know, waiting to sit back and tell me, told you so, told you so. And and that's not what I wanted to have happen at all. So their poor examples of leadership did nothing but motivate me that I didn't want to be surrounded by any of them. And and to be blunt, nothing against the conventional military. But for a long time, it tainted my opinion of, of a lot of it because that's all I knew, right? I mean, I didn't have the... Well, yeah, Scott, once you get out of a training environment and you get to a normal unit and then you get promoted and you get some people under you and you're a squad leader or you're a fire team leader, you're this or you're that or whatever, life does get better and you get these things called passes and you have a life and you're not restricted to whatever all the time. Right. So so I didn't have any of those experiences. And, and I mean, I knew they existed out there, but to me, the Army was a pretty horrific experience, you know, as far as what I didn't want to be a part of unless I, I made it into the teams and, and graduated the Q course. So especially when I had my bicep ripped off, I, I healed in a hurry because I wanted to make sure that I got back in the Q course and didn't get sent to the 82nd or whatever, just to hear the choruses of told you so, told you so, told you so. And when you got out of SFAS and everything, you came to um, an alpha team and everything, you were box sergeant by that time frame. Yeah, I was um, illegally promoted. So um, Swick had <laughs> Swick was all messed up and basically pulled all the X-rays and said, "Look, Department of the Army hasn't cut your E5 orders yet, but you can't be on a team unless you're an E5. So you met all the requirements. So pin these things on." And here, so my my sergeant promotion was kind of like this ad hoc office meeting, full of embarrassment from the Swick sergeant major and everybody else saying like. We don't know what to do with you guys, so just go to your groups and take your leave. And, and so literally one of the first conversations I had to have with the command element on my ODA was, you know, I show up and they're all looking at me like I'm this fresh new x-ray. And I had met my team sergeant previously who I somehow amazingly, my, you know, minutely impressed a little bit with my um, just ability to be a sponge and shut up and listen. But uh, when I got to the team, the first conversation I had to have with my CW3 and my captain and my team sergeant was, hey, Scott, any issues we should know about? And I'm like, well, I'm not technically an E5. And so it was funny, and they showed me the difference in soft in the training environment. So the first words out of my team sergeant's mouth out of after like a five-second uh, thought process was, screw that, I'm not having an E4 walking around the halls here. Like, I'm going to get laughed at, so keep that stuff on, you know. And then a couple weeks later, my promotion orders came through, and the team had a little mocking ceremony and pinned E5 on me again. So it was – but it was interesting. What's different about your situation, though, than the conventional army that I went through was that 
you had an E5, you were an E5 at that point, arriving at a unit, and there really weren't any privates or anybody probably that you were in charge of on the team. You were the you were the lowest guy on the totem pole, whereas you know in the conventional army you have gone through. If you didn't come in directly as a PB2 or a PFC, you came in as a, a you know nothing, a private. Then you pin on your mosquito wings at PB2, then PFC, you know, then corporal or specialist, and then you're a sergeant. And you may be an NCO even as a corporal and put in leadership positions if you're uh, able to you know, pin on corporal, but for the most part, most people put on specialists. So by the time you get to that point, you've had a real good opportunity to see some leadership. I mean, probably two years to three years worth of bad leadership or good leadership if you're in a very fortunate situation. And back in, you know, the day before 18 X-Ray came about, you had to be an E4 before you could even go off to Special Forces Assessment Selection. So you had to be a mature individual by the time that you went there. And then, of course, when you got there and they pinned on Sergeant, then it would have been a different ride at that point. No, for those who can't see the videos because we're talking, I'm smiling and nodding the whole time Robert's talking. <laughs> um, he's absolutely right. I mean, and to make it even worse to, to your example about me be, having nobody underneath me, um, I had about a 30-minute turnover with my senior Charlie, um, who was going to a SPIC tour, and there was no other Charlie. So I show up on my ODA, have the awkward conversation of, I'm not really an E5. I'm walking around illegally impersonating a non-commissioned officer, in essence. And then I get a 30-minute turnover with the whole battalion's worth of, or the whole um, team's worth of property book, which is about $5 million worth of gear. And I get about 30 minutes with uh, an E7 pinning on E8 who's leaving. And basically that consisted of, I can't believe you're the only Charlie we have on the team managing the property, but good luck to you, man. See you. Figure it out. <laughs> nice. And it was like, I'm off. I'm out of here. So, um, And then I was the only Charlie on my team as we did the whole pre-deployment, and we didn't get another Charlie um, on the t an engineer on the team until almost halfway through the, the first Iraq tour. So, um, so I was the sole guy running as a, as a very young E5 in the Army, um, an ODA's property book and all the engineering and breaching operations and, and all the other stuff that we were a part of. So I learned pretty quick, but it wasn't – I didn't have any you know, kind of junior enlisted under me until we were literally doing combat operations and had Marines or 3rd ID or 4th ID, whoever attached to us. And then I would have these privates and everybody else, and they're looking at me. Here I am, this you know Green Beret NCO. We didn't wear rank or anything, but right. they're looking at me like I'm just one of everybody else. And I'm going, what do I do now? Like, how do I use these guys? I know what I'm supposed to do, but I don't know how to tell these guys what to do. So wow. um, I, I asked a lot of questions, and, and you know, I, I and I think that's one of the key points when we discussed this yesterday. The topic of young leaders. I wasn't afraid to ask questions and, and I wasn't afraid to, to clarify, you know, kind of limits and, and roles and responsibilities and whatever. And, and when, when given authority, I ran with it until I didn't know what else to do. And then, you know, I would never exceed my bounds. But I, I think that's one of the things that we need to discuss today is when you're a young leader and you're given that authority, embrace it and go with it because you, you need to show that you're worthy and responsible to have that authority and trust given to you. Well, and that was one of the things, you know, I, I have down here when we start talking about respect and trust and stuff, it's, you know, it's given if you if you give it. But, you know, for me, I think one of the things that I started seeing of junior leaders as they were coming up was that many of them had been serving with these peers that now all of a sudden they were in charge of on a team. And it was that adjustment and watching them as I became an E6 or an E7 and watching these young junior leaders come up and all of a sudden have to tell a friend to do something and watch how that reaction comes out. 
because if they didn't have the respect and they didn't give the respect or if the peer didn't understand that now this individual's in charge, it was an interesting dynamic that started taking in place, uh, started taking place here because, you know, you had, you had a guy that had all these friends and had all these guys that was his buds. They went out drinking, doing all kinds of fun stuff at night. And all of a sudden, bam, you know, you're now in charge of them. So it was and a shock. Jealousy and all the psychological issues that may come about, you know, Maybe I'm in the unit as long, or you're. They don't feel you're as why deserved. you? Yeah, why you? Why not me? Yeah, totally. Yeah, I, I'm very lucky that I didn't have to go through any of that. But so as I was thinking again yesterday, um, rather than tell like you know, hey, here's Scott figuring out how to run Marines and stuff in, in Iraq. Um, when I was selected to be a, a federal level program manager, and I helped stood up stand up the special activity section at Marsoc. I was only in my mid-30s, and, and I was surrounded by civil servants who were all retired guys and whatever. So my biggest leadership challenges came from running these highly coveted, highly sought-after courses and having defense contractors and, and all these retired you know, um, retired CAG guys and retired SF guys and retired Marines and SEALs and everybody else come in. And then they're looking at me, and they're like, I have to take orders from this guy because he's a GS and he, he, he didn't retire. And, and so that was when in the Marine Corps, when they started figuring out I was this very young guy with a very large position of responsibility in Marsoc trying to stand up this thing. That was when I really figured out like the leadership stuff, like and how it really, really intimately matters. And so the challenges that I face as a young program manager under SOCOM running, you know, seven official programs of record that was when I really kind of found my oats as a leader and really started, you know, finding everything else. Because until then I was a team guy, you know, right. I, I never served the battalion. I was never the command sergeant major. I don't have the stories that, you know, Mike Pritz has or, or anybody else, you know, I never ran the company or, or whatever. I was on an ODA and I left the ODA and all of a sudden I was an 05 equivalent in the Marine Corps and majors are calling me, sir. And I get to call battalion commanders by their first names. And it was a whole different experience. So, that's what I was going to talk about today. Try and transition the um, my civilian kind of leadership styles into that, and and and, show, and and I relied on. But going back to it, as I was laying in bed last night thinking about the show today, I, I just relied on what my captain, my team leader, did, and you know, and and all this stuff, and what my team sergeant had done, and and all those lessons were just miniature building blocks, you know. And I knew that. I didn't want to do what the drill sergeant did. I did want to do what Pete the captain did. I did want to do what you know Joe did and this guy did, whatever. So I took all those styles and fused them, and we were able to have pretty phenomenal results pretty quickly at Marsoc because of it. And and that was what really made me happy to see that I did have these leadership skills and that I could task and organize and and move a thousand moving pieces at once. So. Um, I wasn't 19 and 20, but I was young in an environment where everybody else is probably 20 years older than I was. And to be frank, didn't look at me like I had the um, the credentials because I didn't have a retirement paperwork hanging on my wall to be in the arena. So so it was challenging the, nonetheless. You didn't have the little lapel pin like I've got then, yeah. <laughs> I wasn't going out to early bird breakfast and so, you know, early bird dinners. <laughs> Which I've never wore that pin yet. But 
Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I experienced the same thing. I mean, what's interesting when you talked about the transition, I think after you get out of the military, you're used to leading a certain way and individuals who've been brought up and like-minded like you. And then when you get out into the private sector, you're going to find that you're not a junior leader or a young leader anymore, but you're very inexperienced in that community, in that environment, and you're almost having to relearn a lot of things. And so one of the things I think that, a young leader can really benefit from is understanding they're always going to be learning. You've got to be trainable, you've got to be teachable, and you've always got to be learning by either reading books, observing, doing self-after action reports, working with mentors, something along the way as you grow to be a leader. And it's going to happen it's, again when you transition out. It's all about growth. I mean, you, you couldn't have said it better. It's you have to learn how to lead in the military. Then you have to learn how to lead in a larger element in the military. And then, you know, you, you retire and you get out. <clears throat> and if you're transitioning into the civilian world, not only do you have to learn how to lead civilians who most likely have never been in the military, but you have to overcome all the stigmas of that knife hand wielding, high and tight wearing, you know, military right. guy that says Roger and Hua all the time and, and all this stuff. So, so that, that's a hurdle in itself. So not only are you having to learn their styles and, and overcome all that stuff, but you're leaping over hurdles and, and sprinting full speed ahead at the same time because the expectations on you never minimize in fact, you have higher expectations on you because you are a combat veteran or you are a military retiree, whatever. But the expectations are there, and yet there's even more hurdles placed in your ways because they just think that you're some wacko that does stuff and you'll just get things done no matter what. And you're trying to tell them and convince them that you have this learning curve as well that you're going through without seeming like you're incompetent or not worthy for the job at the same time. So um, insecurities will definitely set in in, in the – the time constraints of trying to learn, trying to learn from your errors that you're making and trying to manage all the different personalities that play underneath you and overcome all those hurdles, it's exhausting. And you have to realize that first and foremost, that you're going to be tested almost greater in the civilian world, post-military, post-transition than you were in these combat environments and everything else because people will look at you a lot differently and you're not surrounded by like-minded people. You're surrounded by very different-minded people and multitudes of them. So when I was a young leader, one of the first things I had to do with my team is show a level of vulnerability because I didn't have all the answers and I wanted to make sure that they understood that. That You know, you, you hit on that here during that last discussion that one of the, the things that I had to do is pull them aside and say, listen, I, I don't know everything about X or everything about Y, and I'll be the first to admit that. There's going to be things that you're going to see from me that you're going to have strengths at. Well, that's why we become a team. And I don't have all the answers, but that's where I'm going to rely on you guys. And this is where I'm going to create an environment of open communication where you've feel very comfortable speaking openly and offering your opinion. And, and we all come to the table. Now, at the end of the day, when a decision needs to be made and we can't come to an agreement or we don't um, find that there is a direction that we can all you know come together on and everything, well, then I'm going to make that decision because that's what my responsibility is as a leader. But still, showing that vulnerability and, and exposing that, I think in my my case, really benefited me in the environment that I was in and, uh, you know, especially when you're talking about combat arms, I mean, when you're talking about a combat arms uh, environment, there's a level of expectation that's there for sure. So I think that was one of the things that I learned. And I also made a conscious effort to get to know my team members. 
So I sat down and I wanted, when I say get to know them, I'm talking about, I wanted to know what drove them. What are their goals? You know, what motivates them? Uh, do they have family members? Are, are they close by or are they someplace else? You know, are they married? You know, or they have a fiance or a girlfriend or whatever. You know, what, what are the things that um, they look at to inspire them? What do they feel are their strengths? I didn't get into weaknesses and stuff, but I mean, you know, I didn't always ask them what their strengths were, but I was also observing. And you spend a lot of time really trying to observe your team and figure a lot of this stuff out as well. And, and sometimes when I say a lot of time, I mean, you're just spending every waking moment trying to soak it all in and observe each of these ten, team members because that's that's what it's all about is truly understanding their makeup. You took one of my points that I had written down and it says it's not about the tasks. And I think that that's what most young leaders really mess up on is they're not afraid to ask questions of their superiors to get what they think is this finite task list. And then they go and they say, like, all right, private Snuffy, private Tempeg, private whoever. You do A, B, C, E, D, E, F, X, Y, Z. And, and they have this list of tasks. And then and, – and again, it's bigger in the, in the civilian world. It's, it's this whole messed up project management system, right, and leadership thing. They think everything is task-oriented. And if we can just get accountability on where somebody is with the tasks – then we're doing a great, phenomenal job of a leader. And that's why I'll never call Steve Jobs a leader, right? He was a great taskmaster, but I don't think that he was, and he was also a visionary, but he was not a leader of people. He wasn't a leader of the men and women underneath him. He just drove them out of this sheer competitive desire to be the best. But when, when you're a, especially in the military and especially post-military, it's not about tasks. It's, it's about people. It's about understanding that those people underneath you because we can all go back to, you know, the, the, the ranger handbook and, and all plans and warning orders and everything else. And we can talk about specified and implied tasks and everything else. And if you're, if you're a leader that relies solely on task management to get your point across and to satisfy your objectives, then your subordinates will never come to you and fulfill the implied tasks. They will only ever do the specified tasks and they'll never look. But when you have a team of people who trust you and know you and respect you as a leader, they will find those holes and they will solve the problems of the implied tasks before you're even aware that they were there. And you might not ever be aware that they were there, but they'll be doing the specified tasks you had told them. And simultaneously, they'll be putting out all the fires for you out of a respect and trust and, and a sense of mission that they're doing to satisfy those objectives with you. So when you when you do what you do and you and you get to know the people underneath you and you and you trust the people and you empower them. And that's why my model, you know, the see and act model is select the right people and things, educate and empower them, analyze, communicate and trust. And if you're educating the people underneath you, and yes, it is educating their weaknesses, you educate people's weaknesses and you empower their strengths. You're going to have a winning team, but that's getting to know people. You don't all of a sudden you don't get a biographical sketch of somebody in a civilian organization that says, "This is Betty. Betty is great at A, B, and C, and horrific at D, E, and F." And, and you might have a turnover, and you might not. But as a leader, you have to figure out those things. I mean, you have to be prepared to make a lot of mistakes. I, you know, we talked about that just in the early on in the show, you know, about making mistakes and everything and being able to learn from them. But I think that's one of the, the things that's most critical is you got to find somebody, too, that if you're not real honest with yourself, you need to have somebody very close to you that's observing you in some way that can be very frank and honest with you. I mean, because at some point you've got to do after actions so that you can make improvements. Otherwise, you're just continuing on as a young leader, not growing. And let's face it. 
there there was a book written, I believe, by John C. Maxwell, and I've talked about this in other podcasts, but I love this book because it talked about how you have to um, identify however you rate yourself on a scale of one to ten as a leader. You want to find somebody that's above you. So if you're the leader now as a young leader and you're not trying to rise to the occasion and become a better leader, then somebody's going to be underneath you looking for another leader other than you to be their leader. Whether you realize it or not, you may be you may have 20 direct reports or 30 direct reports or you know be on a team with seven guys, 10 guys as, as a team leader. But what you may end up finding is that you're really not the team leader. Somebody else has taken that role. And it could be somebody on your team that's a junior NCO to you, like a corporal or a specialist that's done that, or even hell, a PFC. Or it could be a sergeant or staff sergeant from another team that's really stole your opportunity here to be the leader. So Amen. you've got to earn that thing every day. Amen. But I think agreeing with you completely, I think that one of the issues that young leaders find is that they do exactly what you just talked about, but they do it kind of subconsciously and they look to emulate a senior leader that they really respect. And so I've seen, I, especially in Marsock, I would see a bunch of young captains come in and they would sit in meetings with full colonels and generals. And all of a sudden you would see kind of the, the behavior that this colonel over a 20 year career and the authority that comes with that being a regimental commander or the chief of staff, et cetera or the two-star general commander. And these captains would try and emulate the leadership styles of these senior Marines well above them, and they don't have the credibility to do that. And I'll take that down to the fire team leader trying to act like the captain, right? Or somebody else trying to act like the, the master sergeant. And when you try and just purely emulate somebody and you don't have that respect and all the other isms that go along with that, that's when you start to fail because you go, ah, I can do this. I saw I saw Pete do that. So I'm going to act like Pete and I'm going to do the same thing. And I don't have the same credibility and authority and background as Pete. I mean, I, I said it a thousand times before, and I know West Point kind of has a stigma. You either love it or you hate it. But my old team leader, Pete Sims, phenomenal captain. And, and I still, I talk to him maybe once a year now, twice a year, but I, I still look at him as one of the finest leaders that I've ever come across because he was fantastic. And, and even though I respect him, I've written about him, I've written blogs about him and whatever, even though I respect him absolutely, I don't emulate him. I'm not Pete. Pete's his own guy. And Pete has certain traits that I really, really like as a leader, but that I couldn't get away with doing those things because I don't have a, a nice, shiny West Point ring on my finger or I didn't have captain bars on me or whatever. So when you try and emulate just that pure authority, you got to realize your operational environment and you got to realize who you are. So coupled with the, the truisms and everything else we're talking about, you have to be self-aware and you have to know your own strengths and weaknesses and then admit your fallibility and just be comfortable in who you are and that comfort will show in, in what you do. Yeah, that anchor, that person that can watch a lot of what you are, sometimes you might get away from who you are and not realize that, well, that person who's your anchor and keeps you grounded will certainly slap you back into place and go, no, no, dude, you, you got it all wrong in this situation. And when you're talking about experience, there's a great quote, and I, I do like John C. Maxwell as a, a leadership author, but he made a quote one time that leadership develops daily, not in a day. And to me, that's a pretty profound statement because when you were talking about trying to emulate others and everything, you don't have that experience. You don't have that knowledge. Well, also, don't try to pretend that you do because people will all of us, people will call you out for credibility issues and that you're not being genuine. You're not being yourself. You're not being who you are. Uh, they'll they'll expose you in a heartbeat in that way. 
I mean, if there's one thing we like to do as, as veterans or military people is eat each other up. So, I mean, we'll, we'll find those individuals and uh, call them out real quick, you know? Oh, of course we will. I mean, we, we take joy in it. I mean, you know, that's why one of the first lines in one of my best blog posts was, you know, nobody realizes a special operators gossip more than an old lady sewing circle, right? I mean, <laughs> you know, we gossip like crazy all the time about lots of stuff. It's because we're so used to being away from family, away from home, away from whatever, and just surrounded by other like-minded guys. It, it doesn't, we don't think it's gossip, but in, in essence, that's what we're doing. And, and I love your quote from, from John Maxwell because – one of the biggest issues I see in the civilian world, even in the military world as well, is graduating a school or a course or attaining a certificate does not make you an instant subject matter expert. Um, and, and it drives Nor me insane. Yeah. Or a leader. Exactly. Taking the words out. Um, and that's the problem that I'm seeing across the board here in Australia, in the States, everywhere, that if somebody has an Ivy League diploma and they're 22 years old, that just means that they're highly proficient and educated in whatever their graduate diploma was in. It doesn't make them a leader. They've never done anything but study, probably, until this point in their life. So when you bring them in and you put them in front of a 20-year salesperson and tell them, this is your new sell, you know, this is your new manager, this is whatever. And by the way, I hate that word manager. I think it has so many flaws associated with it. But this is that new person in charge of you, and there's no respect or authority or experience that comes with that. And it shows and you're setting the new leaders or managers up for failure and you're setting the organization up for failure because you're not properly selecting the right people. Right. So we got to get over this belief that I go through a course, I go through a five day program and or I attain a certification and bam, I'm an instant expert in there. You know, it's experience that matters. It, you know, and it goes back to the day versus daily. You have to gradually get that experience and become that subject matter expert. And I don't think I've ever referred to myself as a SME in anything because as soon as I do, that means that I'm Albert Einstein level in physics. And I don't think that I'm Albert Einstein level in physics in almost anything, even my own personal life. So we need to get away from this whole pride thing of, well, I'm a subject matter expert in this. Like, so you're telling me there's nothing else you can learn in that field at all? Right. You're absolute chock-a-block full right. of knowledge in that field? Come on. Well, that like, goes back to being humble, too. I mean, one of the one of the characteristics of a good leader, and especially a young leader, is you have to understand you have to be humble and remain humble through the whole thing. And one of those things, of course, is as your team starts getting accomplishments, you can't take credit for those accomplishments. That was one of those things that you did when you were not a leader. You like to stand up and say, hey, yeah, if you're looking for the guy who did that, yep, that was me. Well, when you become a leader, you're now a part of the team and the leader of the team. So when somebody does well on your team or if the whole team as a whole does something well, well, that's their accomplishment. That's not your accomplishment. And there's a separation, and that's part of that being that humble leader and holding yourself accountable as well. And that's why, again, you know, when I write and when I talk, it's it's about having that quiet professional mentality. Do I mean that you have to go through the Q course to be a quiet professional? No. But that's why I think that the lessons of, and not just soft, but military professionals in general, and especially, you know, soft professionals, we can really help these organizations because the ethos that we've applied literally through the trials of combat. I mean, if you go back just to World War II and kind of the modern army, you know, onwards, 
there's a lot of lessons that the military has learned and there's a lot of lessons in leadership and accountability and news dissemination and everything. And if you're so proudful that you can't take those lessons and apply them to your organization and strip away maybe the military isms throughout it, what are you doing leading? You know, I mean, why are you in charge of anything if you can't, again, can embrace that continual learning mentality and try and make your, your company, your organization cutting edge? Because the world's volatile and industries are being thrown on their heads. I mean, you know, there's massive news every day here in Australia about Uber coming and taking over and disrupting the taxi industry, right? Newspapers in the States are going bankrupt because of the iPad and, and everything else. I mean, disc rentals from Netflix, right? I mean, Amazon is killing big box stores. So massive companies are being thrown on their heads and leadership at these smaller companies needs to look at that and go, Maybe we need to learn and adapt and be more adaptable so that we can thrive in this volatile environment. And if they're not, they're going to weigh the dinosaur. And that's why, you know, these young leaders who are inexperienced and who practice poor practices turn into old leaders who don't know what the hell they're doing and run companies and organizations and retirement funds into the ground because they're too proudful to say that they messed up or they can't learn. And then I see it every day. And you can almost just see somebody, a blind go over their face and you start talking about change and they go, oh, no, I don't, I don't want anything to do with that. That sounds painful. When we start talking about credibility too, I mean, you got to make sure that you're consistent in the message and how you deliver it and how you maybe even punitive, you know, when you're trying to to set people straight or to counsel them or to give them, you know, you take any type of action. You got to make sure that you're consistent in your approach. You got to make sure that you're clear, uh, clear in what you, you know, say. I had a thing that I put on Instagram a couple of days ago about kind of a creed that I lived by, which is say what you mean and mean what you say. You know, it's basically you got to make sure that whatever you put out there that, you know, you mean it and don't throw something out there or say that you're going to do something and not follow through. Um, give and show respect and you'll get that back in return. And, you know, I think too, you got to have that clarity and be open to new experiences, being open to listening to other people's opinions or viewpoints on it and stuff. Make sure that you have clarity and experiencing new opportunities that maybe your team is providing to you or that you're seeing elsewhere. If you see a new idea, a new approach to something, bringing that to the organization to give them infuse new blood and, and motivation and stuff like that. But also be open to if somebody comes to you and says, hey, listen, I just don't think that that's going to work. You know, ha have the, the wherewithal to be able to, to listen to what's being presented as well, because you, you may not have all the answers. And once you do start thinking that you have all the answers, that's where you're going to fail. Oh, exactly. Everything that you try and, you know, input strategically, right, is going to pilfer down through the operational chessboard and the tactical chessboard as well. So any move that you try and make to impact your corporate or your personal strategy, your team strategy, whatever, is going to have waterfall effects on the tactical and the operational levels as well. And if you don't understand that, or if you're just too stubborn to admit that when, you know, again, private temp pay comes up and says, well, sir, we tried that before and it's really not going to work. You have to maybe listen to that voice of experience, even though to you as your, you know, your 22 year old West Point second Lieutenant, and he's an 18 year old private in the army. He's done that before. You haven't, you know, so listen to that voice of experience. And sometimes you just got to learn the hard way. And, you know, stubbornness is chipped away because of the failures that you come at and the pain is experienced. But one point you made is 
I think young leaders typically take some some inner joy in counseling the flaws of those underneath them. And sometimes that joy is palpable to, to those who are being counseled. And just I would really counsel to, to be very cognizant that you're not taking joy in somebody beneath you messing you up to to have you get have that rare opportunity to lord your authority over them and i've got this i will stand up and i will fix the problems that you've created for us and here i am the leader is stepping up like just just don't lord mistakes over people i mean mistakes happen address the mistake address it honestly talk about ways to counter it to make sure it doesn't happen again but move on you know and don't lord it over them because if there's one thing that's going to destroy your credibility is as a leader and turn you into that negative manager it's it's the lording of mistakes over the the underlings or subordinates that's just nasty oh god if you also make mistakes as a leader you got to own up to them as well so i'm hearing you talk about how you're going to talk about mistakes that other made but geez if you make mistakes too you got to own up to them you've got to be willing to come forward to your team and say hey listen guys uh i just want to point out that what happened there was totally on me and be willing to accept that and move on and the also the same thing is if your team may, uh, makes a, a mistake You've got to be willing as a leader to senior leaders stand up for them and be the buffer that's required to protect them because once they see that you're protecting them and uh, supporting them and, the, and that you have their back, then they're going to follow you as well. Now, not to the point of it's really illegal or something at that point, you know, but I mean, and ethics come into play and, and that type of stuff. Integrity. I mean, you got to think about all those aspects. But what I'm talking about is if people make mistakes and they're simple mistakes and somebody's looking to hang somebody on a fence post and you've got to be willing to stand up and go, listen, that's not what it's all about. If you've got an issue with one of my people, take it up with me. But also if you make a mistake, as I mentioned before, you've got to turn to your team and go, hey, that that was me. That That's all on me. You know, and I, I realize I made a mistake. This is what I did wrong. I want you to know that I understand that I, that I did it wrong. I'm owning up to it. And that let's move forward. You know, and give yourself the same type of, you know, counseling that you just gave or would have given to one of your subordinates. We had a T-shirt on my ODA and it was a, a Brown Army T-shirt. I think I told this before. It said and it had written in Sharpie on it. I'm a dumbass in big block letters. No, I haven't and heard this one. What, uh, whatever, whatever boned up stupid thing that you did, you got awarded the T-shirt. And it was a pretty nice. elaborate ceremony. And, you know, it would be hanging on your and you would hang it on your locker and weekly the sergeant major would at least weekly would come down and he would look around our team room to see who had the t-shirt and then he would ask you know like what did you do dave to get the t-shirt or scotty what did you do to get the t-shirt you'd have to tell him but the I, I bring this up now because we loved it when pete the captain got the t-shirt and we would you know go down the hall and tell everybody like hey pete's got the t-shirt man like go in there and like <laughs> make fun of him and he wasn't immune to it you know i mean right. it was it was just part of the culture but having said that that was internal if you came into the team room and started making fun of something too much then the wolf pack turned on that external person and it was you know hey we can make fun of this and you can make fun of it to a certain degree but then it stops and you don't mess with the team, you know, even if it's whatever. So, but we, we put, I was awarded the dumbass t-shirt several times, um, several, several. I'm several sure times. I would have been as well. I think that's one of the things of just growth and you've got, and as a leader, I love the fact that you mentioned that Pete as a junior officer was in the same situation that any, he, and he was okay with it. I'm sure with, because it was, yep. again, it was one of these things that uh, it goes back to as a leader. I think some people forget that um, as a leader, your job is to grow others. And if they don't see you going through the same pains and they don't see you experiencing the same things, then they're, you're going to start losing some of that credibility. 
And so it's up to you that if you give a command to do something, you damn well better be able to do it yourself and carry it through. You don't issue any type of order or do anything that you would not be willing to subject yourself to the same thing. You know, that's that's a big thing as far as a leader as well. And so in this case here, you had Pete that was like, yeah, yeah, I owned up to it. Yep, made a mistake here. Let me wear the T-shirt. A thousand, thousand stories. I mean, it, it didn't matter what your position on the team was. The team sergeant got it. The team leader got it. You know, the junior Charlie got it. The senior Charlie got it. If you did something that was boned up, and sometimes it would be a competition of the day to see who boned up more to get the T-shirt. If there was multiple things, you know, if you're on the range and something stupid happened or whatever, then hey, is it A or B? Who gets the T-shirt today? And we'd vote for it and whatever. And it was, it was a formal thing, you know. And we all look forward to it, and we mocked each other mercilessly all the time. But again, it. It was that growth as a, as a unit, but we also learned, I'm not going to do that again because, you know, I might have tried that and I had the freedom to try that and the leadership allowed me to try that. And sometimes Pete would look at me post me trying something and I would go, you knew that was going to mess up, right? And he would go, oh yeah. And I would go, all right. So sometimes as a leader, you just have to be comfortable in letting that subordinate mess up and then helping clean up the mess because, and sometimes they were huge messes. I mean, and he would just allow it to happen, even though, you know, I could tell by his face at the afterwards and, you know, we'd buy a case of beer and, and go out and clean up and do whatever. But there's a lot of lessons that you can learn through having accountability, but letting others grow through their own mistakes as well. Because if you're a helicopter parent and you don't let your kid fall out of the tree once in a while or play and get hurt or do something, you know, life is not a cushioned crib with bumpers on it, right? I mean, life is rough and you got to let your kids Within reason, I'm not advocating poor parenting, but you got to let your kids get out there and live life, right? And you got to emulate those examples. And it's the same stuff for your team as well, whatever that team consists of. Never hide behind your rank. And you got to understand, too, as a leader, you may not have rank. You may have been given the authority. A leader is somebody that influences other. And if you have the ability to influence up, down, and sideways, and I mean, if I'm giving influence to you as my leader, and I'm influencing my peers, and I'm also influencing those that are below me, then I'm kind of that 360-degree leader. I'm a center of influence, and that's somebody typically that everybody gravitates to, whatever it may be. I may not have the rank, though, or or that type of title. So when we're talking about young leadership, don't wait for the opportunity necessarily to be to, to you know for somebody to award you the prize of sergeant or whatever the case may be or you know whatever the rank is within the military and stuff. You can be a leader at any point in the opportunity, you know, along the way. You've been given that opportunity. It's how you want to take advantage of it, how much your sphere of influence ends up taking over. But you also have to understand along the way, you don't know everything. So you're growing as a leader and always give the credit back. And my whole thing as far as being a leader too, is I want to see others grow. My whole thing is watching. It's more important for me to watch other people become leaders than it is for me to watch myself become a better leader. That goes back to one of the things that I love most about the the special forces world. And again, sorry if I keep going back to team time and and whatever, but if we're not deployed, um, we're at a school somewhere or we're training or we're at the range or we're doing something. There's, there's never much, there is some downtime. Obviously you can't be going at 110% tempo all the time, but the, the opportunity for growth, if I look back to day one on a team admitting that I was illegally wearing E5 rank to the last day on the team, you know, leaving and, and transitioning out of the military, 
my growth as a person, my skill sets, the, the number of schools and, and certs and, and things that, that I was able to do. And those things don't come because, you know, I'm out there gunning for them like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm not a badge hunter. I'm not, you know, like, I want to go here. I want to go here. I want to go here. And we kind of mock those guys who, who are like that. But it was because when the team leadership, the company leadership and the battalion leadership looks for the voids on the teams, sometimes you go to that school to fill that void, whether you have a, a certain panache for that skill set or not. But in, in some things, you know, I went to a multitude of different schools that I thought would have no bearing on my future life at all. And sure as hell, like somewhere down the line, I ended up using that skill set. But the point I'm trying to get back to is Pete and the company leadership, and the battalion leadership would send us to all these schools, but then they would hold us accountable for learning at the schools and come back and training the detachment or training the company. So I would go to a school for a week or a month or six weeks, whatever, and then come back and have to put together a PowerPoint slide deck to brief the team and brief the company on what I learned in that school. And if it's a new technology, how to employ the new technology, if it's a new weapon system, how to do that, whatever. And so train the trainer type stuff. So that ethos was embodied in me ever since day one. And it was driven by the command leadership down. And, you know, some schools in SF are more coveted than others, Halo School being a hugely coveted school. And watching Pete give up his Halo slot for, for years to give it to people who had the need for that void selflessly, right? So that's selfless service. And, and I can start quoting, you know, trying to quote all the seven army virtues and whatever, right? Loyalty, selfless service, integrity, and all this stuff. But just all that stuff truly matters when you when you really look at what a leader is. They're not just success stories on the wall, right, with a soaring eagle and some cool little you know, motivational quote at the bottom. These things actually matter when you tie the bow on it and, and you put everything in, in its proper place. Good stuff. All right, I'm going to close out again with the quote from John C. Maxwell to make sure that everybody understands that leadership develops daily, not in a day. So don't try to go out there and become a young, you know, starting off as a young leader. Don't try to be the colonel, the sergeant major, the first sergeant, or somebody who is much more senior that has that level of experience. Understand that you're going to make mistakes. Be consistent, clear. Go out there and give respect to your subordinates. You're going to earn it back by doing so. Be vulnerable yourself, but understand each team member has something that they're going to bring to the table. And they're going to have strengths. They're going to have weaknesses. They're going to be things that are going to motivate them or inspire them that you're going to need to understand uh, more. And you're going to want to do things that bring that out and understand that team cohesion. And also you're going to want to call yourself out and hold yourself accountable. Always learn and grow. And what else? What am I forgetting? There's got to be something else, I'm sure. Be self-aware. Realize your strengths and, more importantly, realize your weaknesses. And try and empower your strength or empower your strengths and educate yourself on your weaknesses. And just realize everybody has them. last perfect person walked the earth, what, 2,000 years ago? Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and at Facebook by searching at Mentors, the number four M-I-L. And please subscribe to our podcast. It's free, and it ensures you're the first to hear our latest podcast show. We have several options depending upon your device, and we're at iTunes, SoundCloud, at Stitcher, and at TuneIn Radio. Hey everyone, Robert here. I love supporting veteran-owned companies, and Mentors for Military recently partnered with Skeleton Optics to offer a 10% discount to our listeners. That's right, 10%. These aren't your regular run-of-the-mill sunglasses, by the way. The frames are handcrafted in Italy with Zeiss Vision lenses. Use the code MENTORSFORMIL or MENTORS4MIL at SkeletonOptics.com and you'll receive your 10% discount automatically at checkout. 
hurry up and get on over there to support a veteran-owned company.